0: so good morning everybody okay so like this part of the room's awake and they have this knot we're gonna try this again good morning everybody good morning. for those of you who don't know me my name is Josh Kamakavivo Ole I'm one of the deacons here at Potomac Hills and uh, we don't get up front very often like hardly at all um, so here we are today uh, at the beginning of the year, I asked Dr. Dave if I could preach at some point during the year, and he sent me a list of dates uh, that worked for, well, that he, he needed someone to fill in. And one of them, he mentioned, was a day when both he and uh, Pastor Dave Dorst were gonna be out of town for a General Assembly. So without looking at the passage, I volunteered. Uh, then I looked at the passage, and uh, as many of you are aware, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know, we're going through Exodus. We've seen some great displays of God's power, some really exciting miracles and rescues and escapes. And we don't have any of that in today's passage. We have none of that in today's passage. Leave it to both of our pastors to be noticeably absent when we get a very, very, very dry passage. So I sat back on my chair, I looked at the calendar and I was all like, oh, yay. At least that's what I thought at first. I've been chewing on this for a few months. And uh, we're going to be continuing our study in Exodus today. And while the official sermon title that you'll see in the bulletin is The Servant of the Lord, the better title would actually be Do You See Jesus? Okay. I wanted to continue with the themes that Dr. David had been using for his title, so I didn't choose that as the thing. But during this whole sermon series, you could really sum up everything we've learned and everything we're going to learn in the book of Exodus with the question, Do You See Jesus? But we'll see that particularly in today's passage, since uh, we, we've got all this really detailed minutia, but it's all really foreshadowing, too, the coming of Christ and the work that he did on the cross when he died for our sins, really the picture of the perfect high priest. Turn in your Bibles or uh, go to your favorite Bible app, scroll to it, and to Exodus chapter 28. Uh, because the passage is long and full of a lot of details, I'm not going to read it here at the beginning. Uh, when I do read it, it's going to be from the English Standard Version. If you found your place, go ahead and put your finger there. We're going to pray real quick. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you so much, and we praise you for bringing us here to study your word today. We ask that you open our hearts uh, to your word, that, you might, that we might receive it, and bless my lips, Lord, that I might speak your truth. We thank you also for Jesus, our great high priest, without whose sacrifice we would be hopelessly lost. Instill in our hearts a desire to serve you today as your priests and help us to be more like our great high priest today and this week. Amen. What does a priest do? Take a moment to think about that. Picturing a priest can be hard in today's modern society because at least in this church, we're not surrounded by them. Uh, But no doubt you've run into a stereotype or two and uh, probably involves one of the following pictures. First, you may have pictured for a moment, a guy in nice clean robes, kneeling in front of an altar, offering a reverent and holy prayer. Others of you may have seen a man in rough garments, dutifully serving by sweeping a staircase or scrubbing a pot, unnoticed by the world. Still others of you, I'm going to imagine, pictured somebody walking in a long line, hitting himself in the head with a board. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with any of these, and no no wrong answers to this question. The fact that we can all come up with probably different answers, indicates that that priests do a lot of things, some of them holy and reverent, others of them mundane and commonplace with the occasional bizarre habit thrown in on the side. In today's passage, we're gonna be continuing our study in the first great sermon of God, where God lays out uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai how he is to be worshiped and how Israel is to act with regard to himself, each other, and other nations. Starting in Exodus chapter 19, when Israel met God at Mount Sinai and continuing through chapter 31, God teaches Israel about the ceremonial law that they need to follow, what the rules are for building and maintaining the temple, and what items are to be kept in the tabernacle as a reminder of God's faithfulness and presence and to be used in his service. Within this greater sermon, chapters 28 through 29, chapter 28 we're going to be looking at today, emphasize what's required of the priesthood and what they're supposed to wear. Today's passage pays particular uh, uh, attention to the high priest who ultimately foreshadows the coming of Jesus. And as we've read, uh, well, as we're reading this passage, please keep in mind the following question, do you see Jesus? There's a lot of detail in today's passage, but there are really three major groups of people or persons that we're gonna be looking at. First, those who are called to serve God with their talents, then the high priest, and specifically the clothes he's asked to wear, and then finally the roles of the other priests that serve alongside him. We'll begin by looking at those who are called to serve God with their talents as we answer the first question in the blank in your outline, who is called to serve? Who is called to serve? We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and your sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful who I am filled with, uh, who I have filled with the spirit of skill, and they shall make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a, pe- a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerworth, uh, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. Prior to this point in Exodus, Aaron has been a minor character. He helped Moses bring Israel out of Egypt, actually performing the signs and wonders of God on Moses' behalf. After leaving Egypt, Aaron is mentioned briefly during Israel's first battle with, with another kingdom. In that passage, you may recall, Joshua was leading the troops of Israel down at the bottom, uh, and then up on the hill, they would win so long as Moses held his arms up um, over his head, bearing the staff of God above his head. We did a fun uh, little thing about this in the high school class. We made Miles Doris told a, the heavy thing over his head it was rather comical. Uh, but Aaron and her, who most uh, theologians believe was the husband of Miriam, holds up Moses' arms when he goes weary in an act of faith so that Israel can win the day. Besides these two things, Aaron has been a non-player to this point. Um, starting now though, that's all about to change. Since God has chosen Aaron's line to serve him as priests and Aaron himself is called to be the high priest. A few things worth noting here. First and foremost, Aaron is the older brother of Moses. Sometimes we forget this. And while he served under Moses during the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, he's now elevated alongside his brother to a position of authority where he's the personal representative of Israel to God. Second, as often occurs throughout the Bible, God has chosen a family to serve him as priests, not hand-picked people from different families. In most cases where a family is given a sacred duty in the Bible, especially when people are called to be priests, The family tends to do a terrible job of it. Uh, When, If when we ever get to numbers, uh, you'll find out what happens to Aaron's sons. There's like one good one in the bunch and the rest are are all pretty terrible. (laughs) When you're surrounded by sinners, we all know it's hard to find good help. So that being what it is. Third, Moses and Aaron fulfill very different roles from each other. Aaron is selected to be the high priest of Israel while Moses is God's prophet, though I will note that he does perform some priestly uh, priestly acts in Exodus and Numbers. Those who were here during our study of Hebrews might recall that the prophet represents God to man, bringing the words of God to his people, whereas a priest, by contrast, is the mediator from God's people to God. As the intercessors of God's people, priests needed to maintain strict standards of ritual purity, perform the duties of the ceremonial law, occasionally they were needed to judge in civil matters, pray for God's blessing on behalf of Israel, pronounce oracles, and most importantly, know and teach the law of God to the rest of the people. Just to name a few of the things that they had to do. With the weight of such an office on their shoulders, it shouldn't be any surprise that God instructs Aaron and his sons to wear special garments that would not only serve as a a visible reminder of the office that they held, but also to be a reminder to the priests themselves about the office that they had and the requirements that laid on them. The garments, while ornate and expensive, were not designed to bring personal glorification to the wearer, but instead were designed to be worked in. They were servants' outfits. It would be wrong to draw the conclusion that only Aaron and his sons, though, were called to serve. Indeed, the only priests that are appointed by God comes from Aaron's line, but the call goes out to far more than the five men that we have listed in the passage. God calls all the skillful to assist in the spending of their talents, energies, and resources, as we learned last week, to create garments that would not only clothe his his servants and distinguish them from everyone else, but also to make beautiful things that ultimately bring glory to God. This is made clear in the description of the priest garments, and especially the high priest garments, which we'll look at in the rest of today's passage. Uh, The next section here that we're going to be uh, looking at answers the following questions. This is the second point in your outline. What is required of the high priest? What is required of the high priest? Uh, We're going to go through verses 5 through 39, but I'm just going to read verse 5 for now. They shall receive gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. You'll hear these descriptions used throughout the passage, these kinds of materials. For the next 35 verses, we're gonna read about six different pieces of clothing that the high priest needs to wear. And I'm going to imagine that only the women in this audience can truly appreciate how hard it is to coordinate six different pieces of garments in a single outfit. But we're gonna look at the, the large picture of the outfit as a whole, and then delve into the parts. Help us guys in the audience. First off, in verse five, the materials that are being used are expensive and were the very best materials that could be provided in the ancient world. This is the stuff of kings, not former slaves coming out of Egypt. Perhaps then that makes you ask the question, where they get all this stuff? In Exodus 11 through 12, we read that the Israelites were told by Moses to go to all their Egyptian neighbors and ask them for all of their gold and precious fabrics. The Egyptians who were anxious to be done with the plagues gave them everything. God used this plundering of Egypt not to stroke the egos or even to provide retribution for the enslavement of Israel. Ultimately, he did it so that he might be brought more glory. In addition, the expensiveness of the garments showed what level of perfection was required if you wanted to go in front of God and into his holy presence. Theologian Philip Graham Reichen wrote that these sacred garments, which were made of the same stuff as the tabernacle, which we talked about last week, were designed to make the high priest presentable to God. They were holy, glorious, and beautiful, just like God. And this showed what it takes for sinners to come into the presence of a holy God. The high priest was asked to wear six specific garments. I'm gonna go through them in brief right now. There's an ephod, which would be similar to a tunic or an undershirt as we would think of it today, a breast piece that was attached to it, a robe to go over that, a turban for the head, a coat for the robe, and a sash to go around the waist. Each of these garments is described in varying degrees of detail, but the materials used are described as ornate using these materials that we've already described. Based only on these materials do you see Jesus. In Revelation 1, verse 13, Jesus appears in a vision to John the Apostle, quote, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. When Jesus is mocked by the soldiers before his crucifixion, we're told in Matthew 27 verses 28 and 29 that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they placed it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. This backdrop, they're ultimately clothing Jesus in the clothes of a priest. Let's look and see how they do that when we look at the ephod. Here's the first piece, verses 6 through 14. I'm going to skip a few of these verses because they got a lot of detail, but for the sake of time, we're going to skip them. Verse 6, And they shall make the ephod of gold, of purple, uh, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twisted linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its edges so that it may be joined together, and skillfully woven bands on it shall be made like it. And be of one piece with it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. You shall make two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of the names on the, on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. We we'll skip verse 11, move on to verse 12. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. The first piece we have listed here is the ephod. Like I mentioned, it's a kind of undershirt that's described as having two stones of onyx with six names of the tribes of Israel on each stone. We're all aware of the phrase bearing the weight of the world on your shoulders. But for the high priest of Israel, he would literally bear the weight of his world on his shoulders. Not only must he bear the burdens of the people of Israel, but he also carries authority over them. Like epaulets on a military uniform, the onyx stones here are a display of authority that augments the rest of his servants' attire. Perhaps in the description of these stones, you already see how some of this points to Jesus. The prophet Isaiah prophesied in a very famous Christmas passage that to us a son is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders— and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A minor detail that we shouldn't overlook here is that the ephod is described, along with some of the other garments we'll look at in a bit, as a single piece of cloth with no seams on it. Do you see Jesus here? In John chapter 19, we read that, a, that some of the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' tunic when he's hanging on the cross, but they can't divide it amongst themselves because it's made of a single piece of clothing. There's no seam to rip. So they cast lots and one of them runs off with the whole lot. Effectively, this is reminiscent of the seamless garments that the priest would wear, and ultimately foreshadowing to Christ being a similar style priest. The longest description in our passage that we have of any of the garments is here at the breastpiece of judgment. You've probably seen a picture of it somewhere, on a Bible or on the internet. We're gonna go through the passage now. We're gonna try to cover verses 15 through 30. I may cut out a few bits because it's long. So, you shall make a breastpiece piece of judgment in skilled work in the style of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. You shall make it. It shall be square and double a span its length and a span its breadth. Skipping down to verse 21. There shall be 12 stones with the names according to the names of the sons of Israel. There shall be, they shall be like signets, each engraved with its name of the 12 tribes. You shall make the breast piece tw- uh, make for the breastpiece twisted chains of cord like pure gold. Skipping down over verse 23, 24, down to verse 28. And they shall bind the breastpiece to its rings, to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie in the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them in regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall hold the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Well, that wasn't dry at all, was it? (laughs) Not only does the high priest bear the name of Israel on his shoulders, but he displays symbols of them on a breastpiece. Of all the garments that that make up the high priest's outfit, this piece more than the others is gonna catch the viewer's attention. 12 brilliant gems shining like an arc reactor from the chest of the priest. Those tasked with making this piece of clothing would need to pay special attention to it. Now I know next to nothing about sewing or making gold filigrees or any of the other stuff that's described in this passage, but I know a lot about painting. Uh, I paint 25 millimeter uh, miniatures for the Lord of the Rings uh, production line. And most of the time, I know I got a a few fans out there, but most of the time your models are gonna be viewed from like a foot or two away, so you can skip on the details. But if you do one model really, really well, someone's gonna pick it up and they're gonna wanna look at the details. Not only the stuff that you got, but the stuff that you missed, okay? As such, paying attention to detail to everybody's favorite hero is really important. Occasionally, you'll have some kind of big model, like a dragon or a cave troll. And if somebody sees it, their eyes are immediately drawn to it and they pick it up and they gotta look at it. These models, commonly referred to as centerpiece models, have to be done better than the rest because people are going to look at them. The breastplate was the centerpiece of the outfit, literally, and was a symbol of judgment and honor to be worn as part of the garment of service. We know from the passage that it was roughly nine inches by nine inches, uh, give or take, it's measured in spans, so however big that was, with 12 different stones embedded in it, each inscribed with the name of one of the tribes of Israel. What's important to note is that these stones appear in two other parts of Scripture. There's lots of speculation about hidden meanings about these stones. We're not going to get into any of that today. But they appear in two places. First, they appeared in the Garden of Eden. You can look in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13 for that. And they also appear in Revelation, in chapter 21, verses 19 through 20. What does this tell us? The stones themselves don't actually represent Israel. The references to them in the Garden of Eden occur long before Israel ever existed as a nation, and the reference in Revelation includes Gentiles. What they instead represent are God's elect, his people. At this point, that's Israel, but it includes more than that. The high priest in his day brought God's people before the Lord on his heart, and today our great high priest does the same thing. A small detail that shouldn't be overlooked is that the breastplate itself isn't sewn into the tunic or any of the other garments. Instead, it's affixed by chains. Why is this important, you ask? Any of the women in this audience, and especially those with small kids, knows what happens when you're wearing either a heavy necklace or when a little kid reaches up and grabs it and yanks on it, right? You're immediately reminded that you're wearing it, right? The significance really is that the high priest is going to have to feel the weight of, well, not only on his shoulders where the chains are attached to, but also pulling on his chest that he owns the responsibility for Israel. And he has to, be remember, uh, he has to remember that role at every moment that he's performing his duties, literally bearing Israel on his heart at all times. So do you see Jesus? Bearing, his, bearing our names on his heart, Jesus fulfills the needs of the great high priest on behalf of all of his people. In Hebrews chapter seven, we read that Jesus is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Within the breastpiece, we're told about an odd set of items known as the Urim and Thummim. I know exactly what you're thinking. Please tell me what those were. I don't run into this in normal reading or light browsing. I don't know what it is. I'm gonna try to tell you what they were. Here's the bottom line up front. We don't know. That's not much to go off of, right? But there's what we do. So in order to deal with this conundrum, we're gonna use uh, the maxim provided by former uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell. Tell me what you know, tell me what you don't know, then tell me what you think you know. So here's what we know. We are told here that there was a little pocket that was made because of the way that the chains were wrapped around the breast piece, formed a pocket between the ephod and the breast piece to hold the urim and thummim. We also know from Proverbs 16 that the lot is cast into the lap and it's every decision is from the Lord. We're told in several places in the Bible about when the Urim and Thummim were used. First off being Numbers 27, when Eleazar the high priest uses these, what we presume to be stones, to appoint Joshua as leader of Israel. We see in two other places in 1 Samuel that David inquires of the Lord on whether to fight the Philistines or not, and Saul is not answered when he inquires of God in 1 Samuel 28, quote, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. What we don't know is what exactly they were, how many there were if there was a set number, how they were used, or what kind of questions they could answer. Again, not much to go on, I know. But here's what we think we know. Many scholars believe that these were a mixture of stones, perhaps black and white, kept in this pouch that was formed by the double breastplate and drawn out as lots to answer specific questions. This was a way for God to communicate yes, no, or wait. While the law forbids other kinds of divination, God made this provision for Israel's guidance. And in this way, the leaders of Israel could inquire of the Lord in critical matters that involved the whole community. It's believed by many that the stones were placed in the pocket and a random number would be drawn out and based on which number predominated, the answer would be yes, no, or wait. The precise stones that were brought out of the pouch were viewed as being divinely uh, determined so that the answer itself would come from God. Perhaps at this point you're thinking to yourself, that's nice, Mr. K, so what? The Urim and Thummim is, as you may have already guessed, a foreshadowing of Christ. It was a way for common man to learn what God's will is. We're told by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The author of Hebrews began his letter to the church there by stating that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. The Urim and Thummim used by the high priest of Israel is really primitive compared to the direct link that we have to God today through Jesus Christ. An actual guide on our spiritual journey who we can ask anything of and he responds to with yes, no, and sometimes wait. As we get to know our guide in the handbook that he's given us, whatever decisions we need to make in life can be made in accordance with his will. We don't have to have a special set of stones or a magic eight ball in order to figure out what God wants us to do. Instead, he's given us his Holy Spirit who indwells us and makes clear to us the will of God. The final four garments have far less detail provided to them, but this doesn't demote their importance or reduce the symbolic foreshadowing that they have of Christ. So we're gonna continue on by looking at the robe. This is verses 31 through 35. I'm gonna skip verses 31 and 32, basically introduce the robe and what it's made of. On its hem, this is verse 33, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a gold bell and a pomegranate, a gold bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. The robe of the high priest is being described as blue, built of a single piece of fabric and adorned by various pomegranates and bells. The ephod, as we've already mentioned, was like an undershirt, so having some kind of covering was necessary and proper, though having little fruits and bells seems a little superfluous at first glance. Pomegranates served two purposes first. The Israelites had seen pomegranates in Egypt, but they hadn't seen them since then, and they were kind of a sign of bounty and blessing. As a more practical application, though, pomegranates, being round and circular, make excellent little hammers if you have little bells hanging around your cloak. The practical reason for having the bells and hammers are described by Pastor Roger Ellsworth in one of his sermons. The high priest, he says, alone went into the most holy place of the tabernacle once each year to make atonement for the sins of the people. This atonement was to be made in precisely the way that God commanded. If the high priest failed in any respect, he would die there in the most holy place. The jingling of the bells indicated to those standing outside that the high priest was performing his duties acceptably. If they stopped jingling, it meant he failed and was dead. Since the high priest alone could enter the most holy place, it's been assumed that a rope was attached to one of his ankles so they could pull him out if he died. On that happy note, do you see Jesus? Christ didn't need pomegranates or bells to let people around him know that he was alive or that he was in the presence of the Father, and he doesn't need those today to assure us that he's alive and in the presence of the Father. He also left general reminders throughout the scriptures, little bells and pomegranates, to remind us that he is present and performing his role as high priest before God at every moment of every day. The greatest of these reminders, of course, is the gift of his Holy Spirit, who reinforces to us daily the presence of Christ and the assurance of pardon that we have through his name. Continuing on, we're going to look at the turban next. You shall make, this is verse 36, a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it to the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban and it shall be on Aaron's head. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. It shall, uh, and then you shall weave, the coat in checker work of fine linen and you shall make a turban of fine linen and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. Covering the head of the high priest was a turban described as blue with an engraved signet. This turban not only set the high priest apart from the rest of Israel, no one else walks around with a hat like that, but also re- reminded him of the duties of his office. Like the breast piece, the turban could be viewed by others as a sign of power and authority, but really was a reminder of service and necessary devotion verse 38 tells us that Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. We've already established that the holy priest bears the authority and weight of Israel on his shoulders and on his heart, but we learn here that he bears it on his head as well. Anybody want that job? I didn't think so. I'll again ask the question that you might be tired of me asking by now, do you see Jesus in this passage? Bearing our guilt and shame upon himself is obvious, but what about the message engraved on his head? Holy to the Lord. The turban is said to have a gold plate attached to it, like the engraving of a signet, a reference to a ring that allowed kings and representatives in the ancient world to wield authority. Like the crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus' head to mock his power by the soldiers, this plate points to the ultimate authority that the great high priest would wield. He is not only holy to the Lord, there is something greater that the high priest wields. The final two items receive almost no description at all. Verse 39 tells us, and you shall weave the coat of checker work of fine linen and you shall make a turban of fine linen and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. Why do we pass over these points so quickly? Were they less important? Were we running out of tablet space? I don't think so. Speculation aside, I think that there's a simple reason that there's two, well, well that there's like not even a single verse for each of these. And that's that, they, that these two garments, the coat and the sash, are practical. And while their symbolic natures are not as evident as perhaps the afod, the breastpiece, or the turban, they are due the same amount of honor and respect as given to the other garments when it comes to making them. Notice that the coat requires checker work of fine linen. As I said before, I'm no weaver, and I can't save to save my life. Well, when I can't sew to save my life. But from what I gather, making a checker pattern that looks anywhere, anything like good, requires strict adherence to a plan when you start a project. It requires intentionality. The level of detail that would be paid to this garment would be evident from far away, whereas the breast piece or the turban may not be depending on which direction you're looking at them from. It has to be done right, like the centerpiece model of your Lord of the Rings franchise collection. The sash, which formed a sort of belt for the garment, is probably the most practical and one of the most important garments that the high priest wears, and it's covered by almost all of the other garments. Since both the ephod and the robe are a single piece of garment, there's nothing keeping those garments close to the bearer's body, other than this sash. Making sure that the garments didn't billow while the high priest worked was a big deal for reasons that we will view as we look through the last few verses of our passage, where we'll ask this question, this is the third point in your outline, What is required of us? What is required of us? Starting in verse 40. For Aaron's sons you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. And shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hip to the thighs and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the most holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him." After a very lengthy discussion of what the high priest gets to wear, there isn't a lot of detail given to the clothing for Aaron's sons. What we're told in these last four verses is that those who serve in God's house though should be reverent and vigilant in their service. We're told here about how much attention to detail was required by the priests. We're told that the priests were to wear coats, sashes and caps as designations of their office, but they were also told to wear boxers. Today, I hope it goes without saying that you wear underwear when you serve or hopefully do anything, But back then, wearing an undergarment wasn't commonplace. We learned earlier in Exodus chapter 20 that nakedness before God is a sin. For God commanded Israel, you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness not be exposed on it. The sin that's being targeted here is carelessness that leads to irreverence. God doesn't want someone going commando in a sundress in his presence. He has standards. Wearing clothing was a simple way to ensure that vigilance was maintained and enforced for those who participate in God's service. You remember how a few moments ago I mentioned that the sash was one of the most important pieces of the clothing that they had to wear? This is why. While Aaron and his sons would be wearing underwear during their service, their sashes were an added measure provided to keep themselves from sinning against God. The details provided on this short section of scripture reinforces to us how seriously God views his worship. One commentator wrote that the great care and specificity of this relatively minor matter of the high priestly and priestly garments shows us that God takes worship very seriously. God must be approached on his terms. Meeting with God, drawing near to God, communing with God is an awesome thing that requires obedience to his revealed will. Worship is an engagement with God on his terms, the terms he proposes, and in the way he alone makes possible. The clothing of this passage discusses uh, the roles of the priests who serve God in his temple, and many commentators draw the conclusion that this part of the passage is about us. We are the servants of God, his sons, as it were, under the headship of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. As Peter wrote, the church is a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God. Paul wrote that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. For we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ to do good things, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This then begs the question, today's application, what does this mean for us today? But the start of this passage and the end of this passage talk about those who have been blessed as skilled craftsmen or those who are the sons of the high priest, and that they should use their talents, their efforts, and their energies uh, in order to ultimately bring glory to God. As the children of God and blessed with spiritual gifts, in what way are we called to use our talents to bring glory to God? Of all the parts of this sermon, this is the part that I have been dreading the most because this is where it gets tough. And I'm going to begin with the following statement up front. This is not a guilt trip. My dad is a pastor. He's been a pastor for many years, all my life. And in my experience, those who feel obligated to serve the church are the worst servants of all since there is no love for what they do. They are filling a box and that's it. At the same time, as a deacon here in this church, it is my spiritual duty to encourage all of us to find ways to use our spiritual gifts to serve this body. I look out at the crowd here today, and I know that some of you are very committed to many ministries. I know that some of you are doing things every week or almost every week. I'm going to say up front, I'm not asking you to do more. This church, though, only operates because you choose to serve. It's all volunteer. We're all aware of the ministries that clamor every single week for people who need to serve. Nursery, children's church, Sunday school, set up, especially set up. (laughs) The skills required to serve in one of these capacities is pretty simple. For most of them, you just go through the membership class, which I agree takes like all of a Saturday, but it's worth it. And then you join the church. And then you just have a heart for serving the people who come here. Be they teens, little kids, adults, mixture of the group. Burnout among our volunteers who have served for years is pretty high. Since pretty much everybody who teaches in children's church or Sunday school or helps with nursery or setup also does some of the other things. Or they perform other duties, like deaconing or eldering, or pastoring, or ushing, ushering, whatever that thing is. We'll discuss that on a different day, okay? But we're always looking for more people to volunteer for these ministries, okay? And for more people to help out. And the funny thing is, is that the more of us who help means the less we all each have to do in a given month for most of these ministries. Now, I say this again, knowing that some of you guys are dedicated to certain ministries. I also look out and I know that some of you are not involved in anything at all. Maybe for some of you, doing something on Sunday mornings isn't your thing. I know some of you work after church in the afternoon. Some of you guys work six days a week, okay? Others of you don't like kids. I get that, okay? If you're in any of these camps, there are ministries that don't require you to do something on Sunday mornings. Our moving ministry is amazing! Everybody loves it. If you've been moved by this church, raise your hand, okay? All right. We are amazing, all right? Diaconos coming out here, okay? We are amazing, okay? We help this church move places. You help this church move places, okay? That's huge. Other people, no recognition at all, clean the church office. There's no... Well, you know, if you don't meet there for a Bible study or if you don't work there, like if you're Andrew, one of the pastors who works for her, right, you don't realize that the office needs to get cleaned, and people do it. They show up every week in order to make sure that everything gets done and that it's nice and that the dust isn't covering all the countless books that Dr. Dave has put there, okay? Okay, you get it? There are ways to serve, and I'm not even touching them all. There are ways to serve in this church that don't occur on Sunday mornings if Sundays are like the one day of the week that you get off. Regardless of how you serve, though, and drive this knife a little deeper, um, like the people of Israel who we read about last week who on their own offering provided materials to build the tabernacle, the same materials that are used to build the, the garments of the priests, do you give monetarily to this church? Do you tithe? Do you offer beyond your tithe? James brought up this morning the deacons fund. We deacons are so grateful when somebody gives us money so we can give money to someone else, okay? That's not a line item in the budget. It's extra, okay? Do you give? I'm not gonna plumb this point any further than that. You've heard us talk about tithing before and I don't wanna be the guy who gets up here and just hits you over the head with the Bible. But if you don't tithe, that's part of your spiritual service. It's part of it. Tithes and offerings beyond your tithe are based on a trust relationship that you have with God and your desire to bring him greater honor and glory, to give him the beautiful things that he needs for his tabernacle. Like I said before, it's not my intention to guilt anybody into doing anything to serve this body. But what I do want you to do is to pray intently for God to show you what you should be doing for his kingdom. What are you excited about that you can do for this church? Then, with prayer and very careful thought, ask how you, can, how you can fill needs. There's an email that goes out every week on the city that tells you, here's the contact information for the people who lead up the various ministries. Talk to those people. Seek out ways to serve. More importantly, Jesus Christ, your great high priest, wants you to view his worship as seriously as he views it. We can't do that and you can't do that unless everyone shows up and serves somewhere in this church. Don't serve because you feel guilty or because you feel compelled by the deacon with the weird last name. Serve because you love Jesus. Serve because you love the ones that Jesus loves serve because by reading exodus today you've been faced with the question and the challenge for your own life do you see jesus you need to pray take a moment to do that silently and then i'll close oh lord our god we thank you so much for giving us jesus for providing for us a great high priest who allows us to be reconciled to you. We thank you for your church that you've given us and we uh, are so grateful that we can come here and serve you and serve each other with our gifts and bring glory and honor to your name. We pray that as we go through this week that you would help us to bring your praise, to bring you praise, and to bring you honor in the work that we do and to direct others who see our work to know your son. We thank you and praise you so much for those who have worked so hard today to make this, uh, this wonderful service possible. We pray also for giving us your son, Lord, without whom we would be hopelessly lost. We thank you and praise you for everything you've done for us this week. Give us strength in the week to come. We pray all these things in the name of your son. Amen.